Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 118 for the week ending August 31, 2018, the end of summer edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all, almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies, and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help your company improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor's website, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In a wide-ranging exploration of many compliance and ethics issues today, Jay and I take a look at the Hoskins decision, the 1MDB scandal, only gets weirder, the conclusion of the Leg Mason FCPA enforcement action, some lessons learned via Jacqueline Jagger on the WIND scandal, Integrity was a big part of the week. Uh, I wrote about it in the context of John McCain. <clears throat> Nelson Pratt wrote about it on the Navix Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. Katarina Bulgarera explains why uh, corrupt, excuse me, power is uh, going to be an issue for leadership. Microsoft uh, is potentially in trouble for its distributor network. We take a look at the risks of distributors under the FCPA. We take a look at the Cleveland Browns, the hapless Cleveland Browns, I should say, whose linebacker, Michael Kendricks, was indicted and apparently pled guilty for insider trading. We ask, once again, uh, who's the worst-run organization in professional sports, and then once again, it's apparently the uh, Cleveland Browns. We do a wrap-up of my uh, one-week podcast series on the intersection of King Arthur and Compliance. We take a look at the playoff races, and we end with some words about my upcoming master class in Boston. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back in for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 118 for the week ending, August 31, 2018, the end of summer edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Tom, happy last uh, weekend of summer. So with the Labor Day upon us, Jay, you can put away your white linen suits and your seersucker suits as well. Uh, Certainly in Houston with that nip of fall in the air, we're upon the unofficial end of summer days, not the end of days, the end of summer days uh, with the Labor Day weekend. So uh, we've had a really interesting week, I think, on uh, the compliance and ethics front. You want to just hop right into it? Let's do it. Why don't you uh, tell us uh, about last week's ruling from the Second Circuit about um, the Hoskins matter? So Hoskins is a former employee of Alstom who was um, uh, under um, criminal indictment in the United States for his role in Alstom's bribery scandal. Alstom uh, basically pled out and admitted to the bribery and corruption and the uh, Department of Justice went after four individuals, uh, two of which have pled guilty and two of which were uh, contesting this at trial. Hoskins, a uh, UK citizen, uh, claimed that uh, he uh, never worked in the United States and therefore was not subject to 
jurisdiction in the United States uh, because he never worked for a U.S. company or a U.S. subsidiary. He worked for a foreign subsidiary of Alstom. Uh, of course, at the time, Alstom was a French-based company. And he um, was able to persuade the district court uh, to throw out uh, the uh, claims against him. And uh, he was successful in part at uh, the Second Circuit. Uh, the Second Circuit uh, held that uh, uh, as, as a foreigner working for a foreign company uh, or foreign subsidiary not uh, in the United States, uh, he was not uh, subject to uh, the FCPA. So some of the takeaways are um, are that uh, there was really a narrow Im impact for foreign nationals because uh, although the Second Circuit certainly limited the FCPA's extraterritorial reach somewhat, it left open the door for com conspiracy claims against a non-resident foreign national as long as the government also establishes the foreign national as an agent of an issuer domestic corporation. Uh, so uh, the question becomes, or the focus will become, what is an agent and what is agency? So left unanswered by this decision is whether, in fact, uh, Hoskins was an agent of, uh, of um, Alstom's U.S. subsidiary. Uh, it's not clear uh, under what law agency will be defined, whether it be the uh, state where uh, the claim was brought, uh, whether it be uh, some sort of U.S. common law on agency. Uh, so that's really an open question. There is a potential implication for foreign joint venture partners um, where the government, U.S. government's ability to reach the conduct of such foreign companies that enter into joint ventures with the United States may be um, uh, somewhat lessened. And, uh, of course, uh, we should never forget, Jay, that there's an individual here, Mr. Hosking. So it remains to be seen. Uh, what the government will do if they'll ask the Supreme Court for uh, an appeal, whether they will uh, ask for a rehearing on Bonk, on bonk uh, meeting before all of the justices of the Second Circuit, or judges, I should say. It's uh, not clear uh, what the U.S. would do in terms of prosecuting Hoskins going forward. But uh, because it is a Court of Appeals case involving the FCPA, those are extraordinarily rare. So it's uh, gonna, it is of some significance and something that uh, uh, we'll have to see where the uh, Department of Justice may go forward with it going forward. So being the non-lawyer that I am, uh, in the past, it's always been about trying to establish nexus with the transaction that there was a wire coming through the U.S. or there was a payment or something. So does this really uh, is, is this really more about an individual prosecution or does this mean that the DOJ needs to do more now to prove their cases? So um, I really think it's the former, Jay, uh, because it's an individual. Uh, in the Alstom case, you did have uh, conduct in the United States. Uh, you had jurisdiction in the United States, which implicated Alstom as a company. So that was not the issue. The issue was uh, Mr. Hoskins working for one of Alstom subsidiaries, I believe the Indonesian subsidiary. And so, uh, but the question becomes, uh, is that person an agent? And the question I would have is, did the U.S. company uh, or the, did the issuer, did they accept the money? Did they accept the proceeds of the bribery and corruption? And if they did, that may be enough. Um, I think that uh, really the, the legal parameters of agency are different for every state, uh, as are many common law. 
uh, interpretations uh, in the United States, even statutory. So uh, we're going to have to fig uh, figure out that agency question going forward. Uh, Jay, next we had, I thought, an interesting uh, article by Wei Chen. Uh, everything she does, I think, is interesting. But she really, uh, I thought, channeled uh, Dwight Eisenhower here and, uh, because she wrote an article about uh, compliance not being a, a outcome, but really a process. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so this is something that uh, we picked up from Way. It was published this week on the Bloomberg site. And she talks about that, you know, if you were going into the hospital for an operation, would you want to go to the hospital where they have a 95% um, uh, chance of cleaning their hands and being hygienic? Or would you rather go to the place that has a 100% um, uh, outcomes that their uh, patients uh, survive these surgeries. So, uh, way for the, a very long time has always been focused on how do you measure um, compliance and what are the right things to measure. And in this article, she talked about that sometimes the focus is on the process and not the outcome, and whether that uh, process can give you. Uh, KPIs that you can measure that, uh, I guess, to be proverbial, you're missing the trees through the forest. So she says, you know, there are some areas such as um, tone at the top and that you should be looking at the messaging coming from the top leaders in your organization. Uh, you should measure training through behavior and not entertainment. So just because somebody loves to look at that cute little animated uh, ethics and compliance commercially that you put on, if they're entertained but they're not taking the right action, you're again barking up the wrong tree. And the last thing is to talk about, uh, she talks about measuring controls as filters and again, if people are getting past the filters or figuring out ways to go around, uh, they may not be achieving the outcomes that they're looking to do. So it's a, it's a great article, and we post to it in the show notes. And as you said, uh, we usually has something interesting on our mind. So, Jay, next we had the have the continuing saga of one MDB. And I can only say that uh, sometimes you have to channel your. Oh, before we get to that, I want to explain my reference to Dwight Eisenhower, Jay. Uh, we, Jack Kennedy, or President Kennedy, I should say, asked General Eisenhower for advice around the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Eisenhower responded with, What was your process? What was the process by which you came to your decision? And he was more interested in the process than the end resulting decision. And uh, what Eisenhower uh, uh, came across to Kennedy was it's the robustness of your process. And that was really my nod to, uh, to Eisenhower, because I think uh, uh, Wei Chin is absolutely right. Uh, it's process, not really the outcome. Uh, but next up, we have the case that keeps on giving one MDB. And uh, here I'm going to have to channel my inner Hunter S. Thompson. When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro, uh, because this is only getting weirder. Uh, so first we had uh, uh, certain arrests in the Malaysian Foreign Intelligence Service for uh, theft of government monies around the 1MDB scandal. And then in a really, uh, you know, as a recovering screenwriter, I would have to say, Jay, if you wrote this in a movie, no one would believe it because it's simply too weird. 
is that now we have Chris Christie drug into this scandal uh, as one of the lawyers for the Malaysian businessman, Jay Lowe, uh, who's at the center of, of the scandal. And uh, Christie is uh, uh, one of the lawyers representing him in a civil forfeiture action in the United States. So um, this this thing is just unbelievable. Uh, it's touching all uh, here and fro, to and fro, further and yonder, and it just seems to uh, never be uh, ending. You actually get a, a, a Trump two-for-one because uh, his uh, former outside counsel, uh, Mark Kasowitz, is also involved. So it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely a, a very swampy matter, I think. <laughs> that it is. That it is. So we had the leg mention uh, matter finally, uh, FCPA matter finally ending with a uh, cease and desist order from the um, Securities and Exchange Commission. You want to tell us about that? Yep. So this um, this came up a, a couple, uh, I think, months ago, and it was about a relationship that uh, Leg Mason had in a joint venture with uh, Societe Generale or SOCGEN, and it was about um, them uh, bribing officials in Libya, if you can believe that. Um, as part of the penalty, uh, Leg Mason uh, got an NPA out of it and agreed to pay $64.2 million to the Justice Department. And um, you chose to write about this uh, this week uh, when you had a nice um, remembrance of Ed King from Leonard Skinner. And uh, you talked about uh, how, again, the Justice Department and the SEC are incentivizing companies to come forward and Leg Mason got an especially good deal. They got a 25% discount off the low end of the sentencing guidelines, and they also benefited from the uh, recent piling on policy that they uh, had a large part of their uh, uh, disgorgement that was already paid was credited against uh, what they ultimately owned to the SEC. So uh, as we've seen this year, um, the government is still doing a very good job of trying to incentivize uh, companies to come forward. And I think, um, you know, Leg Mason uh, benefited from this. And I think uh, it's starting to make the calculus clear. And hopefully this helps companies with uh, deciding that decision on whether or not to uh, go forward and self-report. Uh, next up, Tom, we are going to take a look at uh, – the wind scandal and our colleague uh, Jacqueline Jager over at um, Compliance Week. So what's Jacqueline thinking about? So Jacqueline wrote just a awesome, awesome piece on lessons learned from wind resort sexual harassment scandal. And uh, it's going to be uh, very prominently featured in the next um, Compliance Week magazine. It's, it's really just an excellent piece. I commend it. Can't commend it enough to, to everyone, but she takes a look at the background facts and then really, I think, provides some important uh, lessons for uh, corporations going forward that expand far beyond the Me Too movement or sexual harassment. Uh, number one, don't sweep allegations under the rug. Uh, remember, when and when resorts have consistently denied anything uh, was askance while in the face of paying $7.5 million to one claimant. And when you pay that kind of money, it's seriously bad. Uh, what about uh, at the board? Uh, what's the role of the board? So do you have a separate role for the board chairman and the CEO? That was not uh, President Wynn. 
uh, and it's maybe it's something you should consider. Also, do you have independent board members? Um, what about, uh, you know, the very basic, Jay, do you have a compliance officer? Uh, and then do, don't ignore broader compliance and legal risks. Uh, if you uh, recall, or perhaps uh, that's uh, should just note that HR at Wynn Casinos was there to protect Steve Wynn and harass people that make complaints. Uh, that's not the accepted role of HR. Uh, and certainly the amount of uh, money paid out uh, for settlements and uh, money to keep people quiet is not an appropriate role of HR. So consider uh, some of the broader legal risks, which is an excellent article by uh, Jacqueline and uh, has a lot of implications and applications outside Me Too and sexual harassment. So I'd like to jump off the list for a sec. This uh, thought just popped into my mind and I was wondering if we could spend a couple moments. Um, in the article that Jacqueline wrote, You know, she said that uh, I guess Wynn had hushed up uh, a sexual harassment thing, and they paid $7.5 million for an NDA. And I want to just step back for a sec, you know, with everything that's happening in the news. Um, on day-to-day basis, you know, we sign NDAs all the time, but we sign them from a perspective that we might be doing business and anything that we learn about uh, the business that we're working with is uh, confidential information that needs to be held as such. But now you have NDAs, which really um, are obfuscating what has happened in different situations, and the public does not know about any of these things. And sometimes they can potentially lead to shareholder suits, or sometimes they can potentially lead to um, you know personal harm in uh, you know the Me Too context. So. When have NDAs always had these dual purposes, or why do we see such nefarious ones being talked about at the same time when we have things that you know have to happen in terms of confidentially from um, you know just regular business uh, you know uh, procedures? So one of the things about uh, settlement of civil civil matters, civil litigation, civil claims. Uh, civil disputes is that the settlements are almost always confidential. And that has been in practice since at least the time I began practicing law in 1983. So this is something that's been of longstanding tradition. Uh, basically, if you settle, if you're paying the money, you don't want anyone else to know how much money you paid. As to the person who received money, uh, that I don't know the answer to because I was always on the pay. Pay or end, not the payee end. Uh, but that's something that uh, was traditionally required. And the type of NDA you described, Jay, is much more commercially focused, uh, I think, so that there would not be a uh, revelation of confidential business information. But somehow or another, the uh, confidential information in NDAs for settlement of civil, civil litigation, including sexual harassment and Me Too claims, uh, became weaponized. And it was used to prevent people from talking about it. But the impact, the perhaps unintended consequence, was that uh, many corporations didn't have the full picture. So a board of directors, for instance, might not have a full picture unless they approved all of the settlements for sexual harassment. Uh, senior management, uh, anyone outside of HR might not know about it. Or conversely, someone outside the legal department may not know about it. So it really... Um, 
was uh, turned out to be, I think, a very negative consequence for both uh, corporations that were engaging in the conduct and then certainly for the people who uh, couldn't talk about it and couldn't bring their stories forward. And now, uh, because of, uh, I think, the uh, invidiousness that sexual harassment is viewed, that uh, the propensity to enforce these NDAs has dropped uh, quite a bit, and it's viewed not in the public interest to hide this information behind an NDA going forward. So, Tom, I guess what we might see is, uh, I guess, a new category of a civil settlement, but when it's something that's egregious, as as egregious as sexual harassment, at that point, uh, maybe you have the agreement, but you are no longer able to have the NDA. I think that's the direction we're heading. Yeah. So uh, to get us back on schedule and track, um, we've got an article by Nelson Pratt that comes to us via Navex, and it's talking about making integrity part of your brand. And um, in this article, you know, he says that there's really three places where you can do that. And one is that we, you know, we always talk about tone from the top and culture in turn is determined and reinforced by senior leadership. Another thing is words and what the words that we always talk about are your code of conduct. And not only should you have it, but you should make it public. You should put it on your website. You should make it available for all employees and potential partners to see. And the last part is your deeds and actions always speak louder than words. And you need to make your workplace um, have a culture that is hostile to those who lack integrity. And this means you want to encourage employees to speak up if they have a problem. And then you want them to uh, take reporting seriously. And finally, you have to have uh, corrective action. So, um, you know, these are real I would say benchmarks and really core uh, ideas about how you have integrity. And if you do this, uh, you run a great business for your partners. And what kind of set Nelson off to uh, think about these things is uh, ENY recently did a 15th global fraud survey. And this got Nelson thinking about how you can make integrity part of your brand. Uh, Next up, Tom, you had a, a, a great blog piece uh, with your remembrances and uh, a farewell to John McCain and how that uh, speaks to integrity within your organization. Right. I think a lot of people have been thinking about integrity uh, with the passing of John McCain, certainly in contrast to the current administration and their complete lack of integrity. And the uh, so I, I felt like it was important to honor Senator McCain and around integrity. So uh, we recorded a, a Everything Compliance podcast a little bit earlier today, and both Matt and uh, Mike Volkoff both spoke eloquently uh, about uh, Senator, or um, you and, and uh, Mike, I'm sorry, spoke pretty eloquently about Senator McCain. So I think a lot of people have been thinking about uh, integrity this week beyond simply uh, the ethics and compliance community. Um, there was a, a specific uh, Harvard Business Review article. Was there anything you wanted to share from that? Sure. So um, really, the uh, the authors had five different uh, areas that uh, you could um, uh, uh, that they identified as important areas for corporate integrity. 
One, that management takes action when it becomes aware of misconduct. Two, that employees are comfortable speaking up about misconduct and don't fear re retaliation. Three, senior leaders and managers treat employees with respect. Four, managers hold employees accountable. And five, that there's a high level of trust among colleagues. So if you've got those things, that uh, hopefully that will lead to uh, some of the things Nelson talked about and positive responses in the next EY uh, survey about integrity. Great. So um, next up, I've got an article uh, written by Katerina Bogarella. Hope I didn't uh, butcher that too much. And it's about power changes you and that can make or break your ability to lead. And uh, she really talks about two different kind of um, dynamics that happen from people who are in leadership positions. And they can either um, feel entitled because they're in leadership and they do whatever they want to do. And uh, I'm sure we have many examples of that in our daily newscasts. But then there are other folks who are able to use their leadership and their power to delegate and to actually, um, you know, serve as a sounding board and allowing them to leverage their employees and to take that power and spread it throughout the organization and make it more effective. So they're really just, um, she says that power is a currency that all leaders have, but is also one of the most misunderstood assets in leadership and how leaders relate to power and their beliefs about effective leadership are two hidden factors that shape the ability for them to maintain an ethical focus while guiding businesses through continued change and growth. So um, within the article, she talks about um, uh, Salesforce, and she also talks about Microsoft, and again, how these two different leaders are looking at leadership. So basically, ascending to the full meaning of leadership, the leaders must explore their inner space and figure out how what they do affects everyone else within the organization. They should create norms of personal accountability and responsibility, and then they should acknowledge the power of others. So it's a real great read, and we definitely link to that in the show notes. And next up, Tom, we've got uh, an article from Dick Casson at the FCPA blog. Uh, and talking about uh, Microsoft Matter in Hungary, what what's the issue there? So, uh, Jay, this is a, a matter where apparently, uh, well, it's unclear if Microsoft self-disclosed, or <clears throat> but uh, appears uh, that uh, they're looking at some potential bribery and corruption in Hungary and perhaps other countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the issue is really distributors, and the distributor sales model is uh, one that is very common in the hardware and software industry. Uh, in addition to uh, commission sales agents, but here it's distributors. And uh, I think uh, for those who might not know the difference, distributors actually purchase product. They uh, take title and risk of loss to a piece of product, uh, whether that be software, whether that be a, a valve or anything in between, and then they're responsible for selling it. Now they get a discount uh, off the purchase price, and then they can resell it uh, either at a, a specified price or up to a specified price or whatever they can get for it. And that spread, that, that delta, that difference between what they pay for it and what they sell it is their profit. Um, if, uh, if it's an uh, extraordinary amount of profit, obviously this could be a situation where that pot, uh, that sales price 
could generate a pot of money that could be uh, utilized to uh, pay abroad. So distributors are uh, covered under the FCPA. We've had specific cases around this, and uh, it's going to be interesting to to watch this one go forward. Really, Jay, because of this uh, unique uh, sales model of the distributorship as opposed to a commission sales agent. And that uh, gave you a jumping off point for a blog that you wrote on the 28th this week about three steps for managing the FCPA risk of a distributor. And that is, is it in this week's edition of Compliance Week or next week's? It's, uh, it's actually in uh, this week. It's up on the website now. And I want to cite to a guy, Bill, or excuse me, Jay, uh, Bill Athenis. And um, I can't remember how many years ago uh, Bill wrote this article, but he wrote an article uh, specifically addressing this issue, uh, the, addressing the issue of distributors under the FCPA, address, addressing the issue of how, how distributor risk could be managed. And he came up with something called a discount authorization request, which is a once again, to channel our inner way chin, a process, not an outcome, but it's a process by which a distributor asks for a discount. And then you as the uh, the seller determine an appropriate level of discount. It's uh, a bill lays it out, uh, how you document it, how you have a process for it, how you have oversight and review of it and how you track it. And then how you store that information or document, document, documents. So I cite to Bill, I cite to his article. It's a good way for you to think through uh, what the risk is and how you can uh, try to manage that risk going forward on a strategic basis. Great. Uh, so now we have an intersection of sports and compliance and uh, a team that just can't do anything right called the Cleveland Browns. What happened there? <laughs> So, um, yeah, uh, if there was ever the game, couldn't shoot straight. Uh, this is a team that's gone 1-31 uh, and 31, uh, over the past two seasons. Um, and uh, it's unclear whether they're better or worse this year. Um, they are incredibly poorly run. They are incredibly poorly managed. They're incredibly poorly, poorly coached. I will not fault the players because I think they're given everything they've got. But um, – they had a situation where a linebacker, Michael Kendricks, uh, was uh, ha has been indicted for insider trading and indeed has uh, pled guilty to insider trading. Uh, so the question is, what do the Browns know and when do they know it? Well, it looks like they found out about it uh, on when the press uh, conference announcing the guilty plea. So you have to wonder what kind of due diligence that um, – the Browns did, why they would bring someone in who was obviously under investigation. Uh, um, not that that's an indicia that you're going to be found guilty, but you know, you might not want to sign somebody or you might want to put them on suspension or you might want to do something different. But if there's one, um, I would have to say certainly in pro football, they're the worst run organization. Um, the New York Knicks are probably up there with them in uh, basketball and uh, I'll leave that uh, uh, the baseball one open at this point. But uh, certainly one of the worst run organizations, just a black eye for the Cleveland Browns again, uh, that once again shows why you need to do sub substantive and substantial and thorough due diligence. If you're going to pay someone multi-millions of dollars, whether it's to play football or whether it's to run your company, you really need to know uh, if they're going to be under criminal indictment, Jay. So did you uh, did you love the way they uh, 
had coded discussions about how much money they should put in the account. And um, I guess is Kendrick's. Um, what is he? He's he, he's a he's a linebacker, right? Right. So at one point they're talking, and he says, "Yo, so the eighty is there." And then the response back is, "Nah, you should keep number ninety-five." So to us, um, quant geeks who watch football, we would know that eighty is a number for a, a wide receiver, whereas ninety-five would be more of a a linebacker or defensive numbers. So uh, that was my little bit of minutia there. Um, this week, Tom, you've been uh, celebrating your 1,000th podcast. And as part of your celebration, you've done different five-part podcasts. And this week, you decided to take a look at the Arthurian Arthurian legends. So what kind of compliance uh, lessons are you pulling from King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. So, Joe, you're absolutely right. In the land of a thousand podcasts, I ended uh, this month with uh, a series on the intersection of King Arthur and compliance. So, on um, part one, it was Arthurian leadership. Part two, the Pentecostal oath and your code of conduct. Part three was uh, the King Arthur's Round Table and whistleblowing. Uh, part four is a lesser known character in uh, the Arthurian legend, the Green Knight and whistleblower protection. And I ended it today with uh, uh, a consideration of the quest for the Holy Grail and a uh, request uh, for a compliance defense to be appended on to the FCPA and why at the end of the day, not only they are both quixotic, but uh, they will both never occur. So um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, putting on these uh, additional podcasts this month. Uh, it really drove my numbers through the roof. Um, and of course, now the uh, the question is, do I continue at this uh, frantic pace? But uh, certainly this month was a lot of fun. Well, it's been a lot of fun uh, listening to them and, and participating in some of them. Uh, what is happening in the fall in the Tom Fox world? So uh, as uh, probably most people know, fall is the conference season. But before we get uh, uh, so conference wise, uh, actually, I'm uh, scheduled to speak uh Tuesday, September 4th, um, to the Austin chapter of the uh, ACFE, uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. I'm going to talk about the indicia of fraud and anti-corruption uh, compliance prevention or and detection. And then um, I'm most excited about uh, an event I'm doing with Affiliated Monitors, Jay. At the end of September, on the 25th and 26th, I'm going to come up to Boston and put on a uh, compliance masterclass training. It's a two-day event. It will be held at the offices of Affiliated Monitors. I've got information uh, on the event on my website, and you can uh, check it out there. You can uh, register uh, on the website. We're going to link to it in the show notes. And I hope that uh, if you're in the Boston area, you will uh, sign up for uh, what I think is one of the top compliance master classes around. Great. And uh, then moving into October, I understand you'll be going to Denver. What's happening out there? So in Denver from 8th through 10th, Conversant is putting on Converge 18. It is their annual conference. Uh, so I'm going to be participating there in a uh, roundtable. And uh, actually, Mike Volkoff and I are leading a breakout session on key performance indicators for your compliance program. So I'm very excited to be able to, to work with Mike on that presentation and uh, looking forward to uh, being at Converge 18. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great folks. Um, we'll also link there. You can see who the uh, other fellow speakers are. Um, my colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, will be, will be there, and he has a really great presentation on um, uh, perverse incentives. And uh, also, Wei Chen is going to be speaking, so that's great. And then from Converge uh, 18, we finally make our way to our highlight of the SCCE year, which is the Compliance and Ethics Institute. It will be held in Vegas again at Caesars Palace, and I believe the dates are is that October 21 through 24. Does that sound right? It does. It does. And then after that, we it's uh, we, we coast into the holidays and all those uh, muffin baskets and uh, boxes of candy that come into um, you know this week in FCPA. So I'm just looking forward to it. <laughs> all right, Jay. Well, uh, let me just end with uh, congratulations for uh, your Red Sox. You're back up to eight and a half games. It looks like the August swoon where every Red Sox fan. Uh, <coughs> um, Feared uh, the ghost of Bucky Dent was catching them is is uh, not going to ha happen. You got an eight and a half game lead over the Yankees with uh, 30 days. I don't think even the Red Sox can blow that one. There you go. All right, you put it out there. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> uh, you want to take us home? Well, yeah, I'll take us home. But I, I guess next week we have to uh, have the uh, Houston New England uh, wager about who's going to win the opening game of the NFL season, right? Well, uh, as significant as that may or may not be, let me just let you know that so from September 7 through 9, the Houston Astros will be in Fenway Park. Wow. There's going to be a lot on the line next week. A lot. Especially for this week in FCPA. Yes. So on behalf of of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitors. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 118, for the week ending August 31st, 2018, the end of summer edition. So put away that seersucker in your white suit and break out those plaid shirts because it's football. And for right now, it looks like baseball playoff season for the Astros and the Red Sox. Thanks a lot. Have a great and safe Labor Day weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week at FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>